Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nitha Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Good Revenue. Today, we talk to Hilda Malangi. She's a customer-centric CFO, and I bet you don't hear that often enough. She has experience across private equity, large enterprises, the public sector, and startups, which is why it's so interesting to hear her take on why we really do need high-quality EBITDA, how misaligned expectations from annual planning demotivate everyone on the team, and how CFOs and revenue leaders can do more to partner together to support the investments that really do move the business forward. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're here today with Hilda Mwangi. She's a CFO running her own advisory firm. She was previously an executive at Newstar and Fannie Mae. Welcome, Hilda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are really excited to have you here because I have all sorts of questions for you. So I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I am looking forward to the discussion as well. So let's jump right in. Um, What was most surprising in your journey? Yes. um, So when you're in corporate or when you're in a more mature organization, you know, the systems, the processes, everything is done for you, right? So you go in there and all you have to do is your job. Right. But when you're, whether you go out on your own or you're working with smaller organizations, that's not necessarily the case. You know, so that that took a while to get used to in terms of, you know, understanding that sometimes business owners are wearing multiple hats, understanding that sometimes moving the needle is not as easy because there's a lack of resources or the prior the priorities are different, et cetera. So that there was it took a little bit of time to get used to. Well, I think the breadth of your experience has to be really valuable to the people that you're working with today. And I'm also curious, what do you think the CFO should be doing at scale in a larger entity? So at scale in a larger entity, obviously you're talking about one of the things that lies with a CFO is risk assessment, right? And so maybe, I don't know if all CFOs are wearing this hat in terms of thinking about, you know, where do I best allocate these dollars? Where do I think I'll get a best return? You know, because when you're working with the larger teams, you're working with sales, you're working with marketing, you're working with technology, everybody has their initiatives, right? And so it's on you really... And I feel like this is one of the most important jobs of a CFO. It's really sitting down and really figuring out how do I make sure I'm allocating the resources in the right buckets that would not only protect what you currently have, but provide that growth as well. And so um, resource allocation becomes really important. Risk assessment becomes really important. Thinking about opportunity costs becomes really important because when you're choosing one priority over something else, what are you giving up? And is that the strategic efforts the organization has put together? So I would say the number one uh, biggest job of a CFO, obviously, other than the financial management and making sure the finances have integrity and accuracy is really risk assessment and working with the teams to achieve that for the organization. 
I fully agree. In fact, I'm going to ask you a question I, I hadn't flagged ahead of time. But to that end, you know, it does seem to me that a lot of CEOs and founders don't think enough about the value of high quality EBITDA in particular or revenue generally, and that it catches up with you down the road. And so I'd love to know, do you agree with that or you know, how do you how do you think about it? I absolutely agree with that because I think we're in a world where sometimes it's quantity versus over quality. So whenever you're thinking about, all right, we're in an environment where like, all right, how many leads are we getting? Are we getting, why are we only getting 10 leads when we could be getting 20 leads? Or why are we getting 50 leads while we could be at 100 leads? And you know, and, and and how qualified are those leads? And uh, when we are converting them to our clients or our customers, are they really our ideal customer profile? Are they the kind of customer who is going to stay with us for the long haul? And so I always feel like in today's world, we are so focused on the short term. And a lot of times the short term is driven by the quantity. And we sometimes can miss on that quality uh, which in the long run, when you're thinking about profitability and all of that, it might be expensive in the beginning to bring in those really good quality uh, customers. But in the long run, uh, they're the right customers. It's actually cheaper to have them in the long run. So that's I, I definitely I do agree with that, is that um, we, we don't focus so much on quality as much as quantity, which we should be focusing on quality. This is why I'm such a huge fan of your work, because I really agree with that perspective. And digging deeper into that, where do you think we're going wrong with an eye towards how might we fix this hole that we're in? One of the areas that I see as challenging from kind of the revenue, the marketing and sales perspective is that we obviously do a lot of our work in a year based off of projections and the work of annual planning or quarterly planning. And that drives a lot of down-the-road decision-making. The related question is, particularly in venture-backed or investor-backed companies that I've seen, there is a waterfall model that has very unrealistic inputs at times. And to one of the points that you just made, has almost no thought towards quality. It prioritizes quantity. So what do you think about that? Because it feels to me like we should do something differently there. Yes. And that's a really, really great question. Because when you look at investor-backed models, right, investors want to see that high growth, right? It's triple, triple, double, double, double. That's really the right uh, model for them to be able to say, all right, this, this business can be investor-backed. And so unfortunately, what that means or what that leads to is quantity versus quality, because you get driven into how can I acquire as many customers as possible? And now don't get me wrong. Acquiring customers is a good thing because right. we want that fraction. Totally. We want that. But we stop focusing so much on the quality of those customers because we want to get to that point where we are growing so fast, we're doing the triple, triple growth rates, and that doesn't give us room to 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 really look at the custom our our customer profile and stick with it. We we have a customer profile, an ideal customer profile, if I may if I may say that, an ICP. We know what our ideal customer looks like. We know what makes them happy, what makes them sad. We know what their problem is. We know 
what we need to do in order to, in order to solve that specific problem. But sometimes if they're not coming in as quickly as we expect them to in order to hit these growth um, milestones, we might be tempted to go outside of that. And so a lot of times that's what happens in the investor world. And so, and the result of that is charm, right? So you'll find that, in fact, I have a client who is in this exact same situation where their churn rates are so high. And so the customer acquisition cost becomes ridiculously high because they have to constantly go get new customers. You know, their lifetime value of their customers is really low. So it begs the question of sometimes, you know, sometimes it's good to slow down a little bit to make sure that you're getting in the right, uh, the right kind of customer. That also kind of ties back to what you were saying around um, the resource allocation, resource prioritization question. In this environment in particular, I, obviously a lot of organizations have gone through some pretty tough cuts. What I don't see is what the plan is for investment going forward. And it to me ties into what you're speaking to here, which is if we slow down, what should organizations be doing? Because it feels like this is the time, like fix the business model, work on the quality of the pipeline, like some of these non-short-term problems. What do you think about that? Well, I do think that when it comes to resource allocation, first of all, when you're in an economy where there's so much unpredictability, right? And you have, like, if you think about some of the banks, uh, when you think about the investor world, some of the banks that have closed, like SVP and, you know, the Republic Bank and etc., you start seeing a situation where companies are holding on to their cash longer, and for several reasons. Number one, they are afraid to put it back because they don't, sometimes they might not be understanding a return on the investment. And number two, with investors shrinking in terms of how much money is available, investor pool money shrinking, you know, so investing back in the organization, you don't know when you're going to get the next opportunity to raise money. And you don't want to slow down as well. So a lot of organizations are in that dilemma of what do I do in terms of my resource allocation? Do I reinvest back in the organization? Do I go in, like you said, clean my pipeline, making sure that I have the right investment, I have the right people on the teams to be able to grow my organization? Or do I kind of sit back a little bit and hold on to my precious cash? And so it just depends on organization to organization in terms of the stage they are in, and what their main priorities are. So take, for example, if you're early stage, right, and you need that engineering team to be able to finish uh, maybe making, adding new features that are going to bring in a whole lot of new clients, at that point, you might not necessarily afford to hold back from reinvesting back in the business, right? But if you're also looking at a later stage company where there's brand recognition and people, you know, understand the product, then maybe those organizations might, you know, maybe put some, some, some money aside and maybe reinvest some money back. So for those organizations, they might have to do some sort of a mix between the two. But it's a very tricky situation that we are in currently in terms of what's the right thing to do. But it's really working with your finance leaders to understand at what stage are you in and what are your biggest priorities? What's the strategy 
where do you want to be at the end of the year and can you afford to reinvest back in that organization so that you you get to the next stage or are you better off holding off? Is there anything that you think um, CEOs, senior execs, the board miss in that process? Something people might not be thinking of today? Because I definitely agree with you that that it is situational. It might be industry specific. Are there any things that you think um, leaders are missing that might be helpful for them to know? I think it's just making sure that, again, a lot of this is done through teamwork, right? A lot of this is done where you bring in all of your leaders together and talk about what are the most important priorities. That's what strategy sessions are all, all about is figuring out from a technology perspective, from a sales perspective, from a marketing perspective, from you know, from a uh, GNA perspective, as a company, where do you need to be or where are you headed? So I've seen a lot of organizations where it's kind of like siloed decision making. You know, maybe the CFO, the CEO are getting together and making these decisions based on, you know, what they think is the best thing to do. But I always encourage organizations, do it as a team, get in the room, fight it out because Every one of your departments is going to have their priorities and no one wants their priorities to be left behind, you know, but these war rooms, like we call them, is where not only do you all get aligned in terms of the direction of that company, but you also have that support in terms of, all right, this is where our investment needs to go. You know, our investment needs to go to building our pipeline because without that pipeline, we don't have good revenue. You know, or our investment needs to go into cybersecurity because we are so exposed right now. So it it really takes working as a team. And that's what I would encourage everyone to look at it is bring your team together and then figure it out from there. I think that's really, really good advice. And I do think you're right that often it seems that there's a subset of executives making decisions. And obviously every business is different. And the entire company owns the consequences of the decisions. Sometimes it's not clear to me that that we think through those trade-offs when they're being made. Yes. What do you think should happen when a CEO, and I will put this on the CEO because the leader of the company, when a CEO doesn't plan well, and maybe that's in partnership with a CFO or again, maybe there's excessive ambition. Obviously, nobody wants to go back to the board or to investors and say, like, this isn't going well. But it feels like there's a cost and there's a lot of thrash to the business when that happens. So sure. if you are in that unfortunate situation, what do you what would you advise a CEO to do or the board? What would you advise them to do? Yes. And that's a really great question, which, you know, it happens more time than you would think um, where, you know, the. It could even have been a strategy session, including everyone, including right. the board, coming up and saying, you know, guess what? We can be able to do 30% growth the next year. And so um, what that creates is a lot of uh, misaligned expectations, right? And these misaligned expectations really touch everyone from the leaders of the organization to the employees, where everyone is striving to get to this number, but things were not well thought out, whether it was in terms of the sales or the marketings of the leads that are coming in or, you know, the quality of the product in itself. Maybe it's failing more times than you had anticipated. So uh, misaligned expectations are really, really um, a demotivator in, for everyone involved. Financial strains, and that comes with a lot of financial strain as well, 
because you find uh, like I, I've I've seen organizations where they've invested in the resources. So say for example, they've hired a bunch of people, right? With the expectation that if we bring in this number of people, we can be able to exponentially grow. And so when that whole plan is wrong, you're not in a situation where you have so much financial strain. You have all these people, maybe you have to lay them off. Maybe you have to figure out what the next steps are. And then also financial strain for the customers as well. I mean, not so much financial strain, but stress for the customers as well. Because now you're finding yourself in a situation where maybe the salespeople are really pushing these customers or potential customers to go ahead and purchase the product or the service or what have you. And so what ends up happening is the key to really resolving this is understanding it and accepting it as quickly as you can, right? This is what you call pivoting. It's accepting that our expectations were not good. Our plan was flawed. So then what do you do from there? You create a new plan. Right. Instead of keeping on that trajectory of the, the old plan, the incorrect plan, it's just a matter of saying we need to stop right here and we need to course correct. And a lot of organizations, believe it or not, are not able to do that fast enough. Sometimes organizations do it too late where sometimes even the business cannot be saved. So the trick is recognizing this quickly enough and doing that pivot and course correcting and saying, you know what, we, we don't need these many resources. You know, we don't need um, X amount that we were thinking we were going to get. And then starting to implement um, the new plan. I think in the case of those larger challenges, the business model, the, the challenge with the customer, I, I find that one of the things companies don't necessarily keep in mind is that product market fit is not a one and done situation. Like the cousin to that or the corollary to that, in my view, is the segmentation, which I think a lot of companies um, forget two things. One being, as you grow, there are different segments. You're going to have to find fit again. And or sometimes the market changes. And I've seen established companies have this challenge, too, of you know the, the sands have shifted. And again, what used to work isn't working. So I, I don't know if you, there's anything else you would add to that, but I, I do feel like it's not a, um, it's not like you just grab this brass ring and then, it, and then you're done. It's a process. No, and I completely agree with you. It's a process. And the other thing too, is that people's preferences change or right. a, a better product comes into market almost right. at the same time as yours. So I do agree. It's very iterative work and just making sure, you know, this goes back to the whole, is your customer happy? What else do they need that is not getting necessarily fulfilled by the product or the service? You know, obviously net promoter scores in terms of measuring the happiness of your clients, you know, so it's it's a lot of work where you need a team, a team that is really dedicated to making sure that you're nailing it and that the kind of like to our earlier conversations, the kind of customers that are coming are good quality customers and they truly fit your model of what it is, what does your ICP look like. And that ICP is also very agile. It changes, right? It changes as as the market changes. It changes as time goes by. It changes as your product changes and your features change. So all the more importance of really making sure you're, again, going back to resource allocation, make sure you're thinking about all of these things when you're thinking about resource allocation. 
topics too that I w- wanted to raise with you is about the buyer journey and the mm-hmm. downstream effects on how sales and marketing organizations work together and with finance. And I know you've seen some of the the same data that I've seen, which is that particularly in B2B, buyers want to self-serve and they very much control the process. We have very crowded markets. Um, now we have very tight budgets, shorter contract cycles. And at the same time, I still see some of the same debates between finance, marketing, and sales. And it often comes back to a question of attribution. Who's doing what? Who gets credit for what? That then drives the investments, the resource prioritization, those other choices. So there's a cycle and a process there. The excessive focus on attribution means that marketers in particular are pushed towards lead gen and direct response. And I think particularly in a complicated sale, that never is the reason. I mean, you're, you're saying the exact right. right thing, which is there are, you know, hundreds of probably touch points, interactions, et cetera. And if we're, you know, we're doing all this work on the brand side, and then the tail end of it is somebody goes to Google, looks up your company, clicks and comes in and then we, we claim that that was an SEO win. Like that's right. That, you know, right. we're missing what happened. And, and we know this in our own work and lives as executives, right? I mean, this is how we buy. So it's not like we're selling to these aliens that like somehow don't exactly. do all the same things that we do. And, and I kind of wonder too, if it part of the challenge is that because we've been doing things this way for you know, 10, 15 years now, and people don't necessarily know how to do it differently. And maybe we don't, between us, have the, the right answer to it. But what I'm curious about is how can revenue leaders partner with CFOs and with finance to support the investments that actually move the business forward? That's a really great question because, you know, CFOs, um, and I'm generalizing here, so I'm not talking about all CFOs. So I'm just saying from my point of view is that we tend to be very traditional in terms of if I cannot be able to measure the impact of something, I probably will not approve it. Right. But that's not the way um, sometimes sales or marketing work. So I think one of the main things that really need to happen, and and I alluded to this earlier, is really sitting down and educating each other and understanding, all right, from a sales perspective, educating the CFO and saying, right, this, this, this is the methodology that we need to take in order to get from point A to point B. But also from the salesperson understanding is understanding and being able to present what does that ROI look like? How can I be able to measure those results? And if you can be able to do to to put those metrics together, those measurable things together, you probably win that CFO much faster versus, you know, everybody's doing this. And if we do X, Y, and Z, this is what it's gonna happen. And so it's really educating each other on what are the main priorities for each. And then coming to an agreement on what are the measurable metrics or KPIs that we can agree to to measure as a go-forward basis. And then definitely, like I said earlier, communication, being in constant communication. If things are going wrong, obviously being in communication in terms of what does that mean? Do we need to pull back some resource allocation or not? Do we need to change the strategy there? And then the other thing that I would definitely 
think both the CFO and the sales need to be in alignment is that risk assessment in terms of what is the risk? What's the exposure here? And so I feel like if, if you can agree to those things, those conversations will, uh, will be so much better. What I'm hearing in that too, and I, I completely agree that I think revenue leaders need to build better business cases and to connect the dots, even when it's difficult. And that's why you know I was kind of inquiring about attribution because I do think it comes back to it comes back to really understanding what that data is and isn't able to share with you, right? Because I think it used to be the case that you could look at that and you would have a full picture of what someone's journey was. And today it's a far less transparent right process, right? We don't we don't know like what made Hilda buy this today or you know what inspired Nita to ask for a demo today. We can make good inferences, but I think that also presumes that both the sales and marketing leaders are looking at this more big picture. And the other thing that I asking a little bit more on the investment side, it seems to me that what we really want marketers to be doing is the work of investment, the not yet in market, the people that aren't asking for things today. I mean, that's where we want them focused. But I often see a lot of marketers doing the um, sales support mission, right? Like we're we're asking for air cover for some somebody, you know, at a big bank because they're about to to buy from us or whatever, which feels like a poor use of the resources, both on the marketing side and the sales side. I don't know if you're seeing that too, but yeah. And and I, my whole thing is always be predictive versus react, right? So uh, so I'm a, I'm a very firm believer of anticipate what what is gonna be and act on that. Because when you're anticipating on what it's going to be, when you're anticipating, you know, these people are going to be asking for this in two months, in three months, let, let's get prepared for, let's get our products and features ready for that because that's where we are headed. I think that's honestly a better use of your resources versus, you know, like you said, sales enablement here and, and, and that. So I'm a very big proponent of always thinking outside the box, always thinking of what could be. Obviously, you have to weigh your risk assessment. Risk assessment is a very big deal there and opportunity costs as well. But um, a very firm believer of always looking at being predictive as much as you can. And AI in this day and age, and I don't know how much of AI you've used or are planning to use, but I feel like when we're thinking about this whole predictive analysis and coming up with where do we need to invest? Because, you know, maybe we need to get to a blue ocean, right? Um, but there's a lot of organizations, especially these very large organizations that are really leveraging AI and the information that it brings in. And so it would be interesting to see how how widespread this AI becomes, even to smaller and medium-sized organizations when it comes to predictive anal analysis. AI question is a really interesting one because I do see some applicability for it in very discrete places, like the tail end of a journey. I think there are um, some other efficiency gains that you can get across go-to-market. But what I'm a little nervous about with AI is I think people are talking about it in a way where they're looking to overutilize it, and I suspect they're going to be disappointed by the results for example, I think you've already talked about the biggest issue, the biggest opportunity that I think most companies have, which is 
go talk to your customer. Like everybody should be talking to the customer. Okay. And it doesn't count if like only the sale, like neither the salesperson should not be the only person talking to the customers, right? Or the people on like the support lines. And I find that in a lot of companies that it might be the marketers aren't talking to the customers. Sometimes the product team is barely doing with product discovery. I mean, there's just a, I think there's a real gap between what we think the people we're trying to help want and what they actually need value and are willing to pay for. And it, to me, comes back to, um, I could just see AI being a proxy in ways that are not helpful. Like just because, you know, someone from Coca-Cola came to your website, whatever, does not mean that we should run a huge ad campaign for every employee of Coke, right? And sure, right. I, yes. I, that, that kind of thing happens so often in organizations. Like I, that's where I get a little nervous about the application yes. of AI. Like, how do you, how do you see that? And I actually would not want to come to you and ask for resourcing for that. Like, I would much rather test into it if we're going to do it. But I don't think it's a replacement for the harder work of understanding the customer and um, and gleaning insights from them. Right, right. And I feel like AI, obviously, AI is a very, it's a pretty new phenomenon right now, or at least the widespread of it. And I really do think it's just going to get better. It's just going to get more powerful. It's scary in that sense, in, in, in terms of how powerful it can get. But I feel like there are certain use cases where using AI might be the right thing to do, and it will probably transform the way you think and the way you make decisions. And then there's some use cases where, you know, maybe it's going to take a while before AI is truly able to say in a very dependable way that this is the direction that you need to be taken. But I always encourage organizations, at least get familiar with AI. And based on your use cases, you might be surprised how if, how much efficiencies it brings into your organization. Definitely not for all cases, but um, I do feel like in the next five years, we are going to be completely transformed in just the way we do business. I can definitely see that for the manual repetitive processes. The part that I'm still a little skeptical about, you know, I we already have um, so much, you know, automation and so many generic content strategies and campaigns and whatnot. And I feel like we are two clicks away from just, you know, your AI campaigns talking to my AI responses. And there's like no human in the middle. And I don't know how it feels like a um, war of escalation there that I'm not sure is going to be super productive. So one of my maybe contrarian hypotheses, it might result in people having to actually do more thoughtful work in a lot of areas, because I don't know how else you differentiate whatever it is you're trying to do or sell. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. I think AI, at least in the beginning, it's going to replace a lot of, and it has replaced a lot of repetitive manual work. Right. And so what that means is that, you know, we just have to figure out how to do things better. It gives us the opportunity to be more creative. And, you know, it's completely happened. And I don't want to give quotes because I'm not a historian, but over time, right, we've become smarter in the way we do things. But that has allowed us to be more creative, more innovative, something AIs don't have maybe potential to do, at least not as of today. Who knows what's gonna, what, what version of AI is going to be here in the next five, 10 years. But yeah, it's just been creative, innovative things that only us can be able to do and maybe not some machine. Given all of your experience with such a wide range of companies, what do you think that high performance companies do differently from the rest of the pack? 
Oh, that's a really amazing question. And and really, high-performance companies really come from the leader. I believe they really come from really the CEO and the leadership team, but really from the CEO and the vision that they have. And bringing teams together is absolutely crucial in terms of success because decisions made together go much farther than decisions made by one person or a couple of people. So I would imagine thinking about the leadership and the risks that they're willing to take. Obviously, you don't want to expose the organization, but you know the risks that they're willing to take. And if you think about history, you know, look at companies like Blockbuster, right? They, um, I think there was this situation where maybe Netflix approached them and they turned them away. And so they were not able to be as innovative and they were not able to see this vision of this predictive vision that I was talking about earlier. So really the leadership and especially the CEO has to be a visionary. But even more importantly is that they can be a visionary, but they have to bring in the team to buy into that vision. Because without that team, the implementation is just going to be horrible. So I would say visionary leader, bringing the team together, work cohesively with that togetherness where there's no disparity between priorities. And and I think that's what makes great organizations. That's really wonderful, encouraging advice. Thank you so much, Hilda. We very much appreciated hearing from you. Yes, and thank you for having me. I loved being here. It was a pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a new show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.